looks like we've got some some people in here. I think we've got a critical mass and you all know, hopefully, that today I am talking to Savin Goyal. He is one of the maintainers of Netflix's <laughs> Metaflow. And the first thing that I'm going to ask him, <laughs> Savin, when is Stranger Things 4 coming out? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you mean... Even I'm curious to know when it's Stranger Things season four coming out. Oh, I knew <laughs> it. Know as soon as I get to know. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to play that off smooth. So that is not what we came here to talk about, is it? We came here to dive into Metaflow. This is a to-be-continued version two of this talk. If anyone was around on version one, we had Ravi, your coworker come on here and he gave us the breakdown of what Metaflow is. Uh, but I would love to know before we start with any of that and get into Metaflow, you've had a pretty prolific career already. I can tell you're young still. So you've been able to accomplish a lot up until now. Can you just give us a bit of background on how you got to be where you are right now doing this with Netflix and working on Metaflow? Uh, yeah. Great question. Um, I think I was just incredibly lucky to be at the right point uh, at the right time. Uh, and I think when I was graduating, uh, there was definitely a desire to work in uh, data systems. So early on in my career, I worked on big data systems. And then uh, as the community evolved towards sort of like adopting machine learning more and more, it was sort of like a natural segue. And that's how I found myself uh, working on machine learning systems. And uh, Netflix, you know, uh, it, it happens to be a great place to do engineering. Uh, the company runs very lean uh, and still has uh, global impact. So, so yeah, it's nothing, nothing specific uh, in the sense that, yes, you know, like I don't really have a specific um, action item or a plan that I can share, but I guess it was more about uh, certain things that happen to me uh, very naturally, very organically. And um, yeah. Awesome. So for those who missed the first installment of this chat, can you just give us a breakdown real quick of what Metaflow is and how it came about? Sure. Uh, so Metaflow is uh, Netflix's machine learning framework. And um, so, so it's, it's used internally for all sorts of use cases uh, that we have ranging from, you know, analyzing our content slate, um, figuring out, you know, how to fight fraud on our service better, building intelligent infrastructure and so on and so forth. So it was built to cater to a diverse set of use cases that we found ourselves getting more and more into. And um, also, uh, the, the data scientists that we have internally at Netflix uh, employed on our roles, um, they're essentially experts in machine learning, experts in uh, statistics uh, and other quantitative fields. And they essentially desired to have uh, a machine learning framework that would essentially allow them to exercise uh, their freedom of choice and tooling, uh, what sort of algorithms they want to use, what sort of other monitoring tooling they want to use, uh, how they want to actually go about building their machine learning models uh, without sort of like the tool, the framework by itself imposing any sort of constraints. 
And that was kind of like the unique need uh, that we had when we set about building uh, Metaflow. And uh, most of the design decisions that you see around Metaflow are uh, mostly around fostering uh, that sense of freedom. That yes, you know, I'm not tied to a specific framework or I'm not tied to doing machine learning or data science in a particular way. And uh, but then at the same time, uh, for any machine learning problem, there are certain concerns that cut across all the problems, right? Like you need to make sure that you have a good lineage of all the work that you are doing, uh, experiment tracking. Uh, you need to make sure that you are able to sort of like train and deploy your models at scale. And uh, the definition of that scale can vary. Maybe you are processing a lot of data. Maybe you're not really processing a lot of data, but you're training a lot of models. Or uh, maybe your model uh, is uh, pretty heavy and huge. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that our tooling could take care of all of those concerns. And uh, the user, uh, there wouldn't be any sort of like necessary uh, expectation on their behalf to sort of like dive deep into systems engineering and figure out like, okay, how do I launch containers? Uh, how do I think about reproducibility? Um, how do I sort of like uh, move terabytes and petabytes of data across different systems? So, so we just like, looked at all the different small little pain points that our data scientists were facing and we decided to okay you know like let's let's just like uh start building tools that can take care of each of those pain points one at a time and if you do that for a sufficiently long duration you end up with something that looks like a framework and that's that's how we put that's awesome so in the stack where does metaflow stand like what do you feel like are other tools that are similar to what you're doing mm -hmm. or what and where like i'm just trying to get an idea of the workflow mm -hmm. and i know that netflix has quite a few tools mm -hmm. that the data scientists are using so can you break down what that looks like and how where it goes sure yeah so so now when you look at say a uh, stack of machine learning right uh, there are different components involved and those components they sort of like stay true for any sort of machine learning problem uh, like the very first stack is uh, that of a data platform so you need access to data and uh, for netflix our data exists in a variety of different formats uh, so uh, s3 is our data lake so most of the metadata uh, most of the data sets um, are present uh, in s3 and then uh, at the same time, we are a video streaming company. So we have like petabytes of uh, video data, uh, the actual raw files. And uh, given you know the increasing interest in computer vision and uh, some of the benefits that it can have for us, we also do a lot of uh, processing on those files as well. And those files live on S3 and are exposed uh, using a variety of different mechanisms uh, to our internal users. And uh, now, once you sort of like go beyond the data stack, then the next thing that comes in uh, is your compute layer. Now you need you need to process this data somehow, right? And uh, again, you know, there's there's a spectrum of compute layer for us internally. Uh, the most simple one is that of a laptop. And uh, you know, like if if you can just do your work on a laptop, if everything fits on your laptop, that just affords a very high degree of flexibility and uh, a lot of problems that we solve internally things can just fit on a laptop and we want to make sure that you know we are providing some sort of support for that then um, you have cloud workstations so say an ec2 instance or a docker container uh, running on one of these ec2 instances where people can log in and they can do their work 
and usually these will provide them a lot many more resources than what a uh, general purpose laptop or Mac uh, can provide you. And then uh, at the same time, there are certain bespoke needs uh, that people have that, hey, you know, I need to run some compute that might need, say, a terabyte of RAM. And at that point in time, you can very easily farm out that compute to uh, EC2 instances, which provide uh, very exotic combinations of resources these days. And uh, those combinations are only growing uh, day by day. And uh, for, for a lot of organizations, this container orchestration system essentially looks like some, uh, sorry, it, it essentially looks like some sort of like container orchestration system, uh, predominantly say Kubernetes or, you know, like AWS batch. And internally uh, at Netflix, uh, our container orchestration system uh, is called Thetis. So it's, uh, it's an open source project. Uh, it predates Kubernetes uh, and provides like very similar guarantees as well. Then um, now if you go a level beyond this, right, now these compute instances, they are running containers. So then you need to have some infrastructure to either build uh, and bake these Docker containers and deploy uh, to these instances. Uh, and that's again, you know, like some, some sort of infrastructure that needs to exist. Uh, we have some homegrown CI CD around Docker images. There's a lot of tooling that exists outside in the world as well. And then um, also you need some sort of orchestration infrastructure as well. So, you know, these machine learning models, like many times people want to run these at particular cadence. So at Netflix, uh, you know, we are logging a lot of data. So anytime we have, say, a fresh data set, we might want to re-trigger model training, or maybe, you know, we might want to re-trigger model training every week, every day, every few hours. So, so you need to have some sort of workflow scheduler that can take care of that. Uh, Airflow is an open source alternative. Mm -hmm. uh, the clouds, they provide uh, some tools as well. Uh, internally, as it happens with many other big companies, we have like you know tens of uh, internal workflow orchestrators that people have built for specific use cases, and you have to work with like most of those. And then, um, if you then start to sort of like go beyond this, then you sort of like get into the realm of MLOps, mm -hmm. uh, which is around like okay, now all the layers of stack that I spoke about, they don't necessarily have anything to do with machine learning, but now. If you're say running a workload uh, which is a machine learning workload then there are like certain extra things that you need to do right like um, repeatability becomes a big concern that whatever i have uh, whatever workload i'm executing at any point of time in the future i should be guaranteed that i can execute the same workload and notionally get similar results right like that would be like something at minimum right and then given that uh, it's a very iterative process as well like building machine learning models you need like experimentation as a first class citizen and uh, also performance becomes really, really important uh, for a lot of people uh, like performance usually means like machine performance. But now as it happens, machines are actually rather cheaper than data scientists. So you have to focus on equal measures on how productive your data scientists are being. Uh, if, if let's say mm, our data scientists are spending uh, more than half a day just like building and making a docker image and like trying to sort of like fight dependencies that's lost productivity for business so so that's that's the stack and i'm pretty sure you know like for a lot of people who are attending this call in their organizations as well the stack would look very much similar in some mm -hmm. sense but now what's sort of like tricky is how do you sort of like move between these layers of the stack 
right? Mm -hmm. So uh, now let's say if I need to train a TensorFlow model and say I need to train hundreds of TensorFlow models in parallel, how do I go about launching those hundred instances in parallel, making that Docker image, moving my data from my data warehouse yeah. to those Docker uh, instances, uh, training that model, getting that result back, still maintaining some sort of like strict lineage and experiment tracking. And that becomes harder. There are of course best practices and uh, you know, given that uh, members of my team and myself, we have worked in this area for like years and years. We, we have those practices that we have sort of like come across, but then ideally to provide better leverage, it's nice if we can bake all of those best practices into a software system. And that's what at the end of the day Metaflow is. So many that good things you said there. <laughs> yeah, so much. I mean, and so what I kind of got from that, you went very vertically on the stack and uh, just a lot of people in, in here probably already knew that Netflix recreated its own Kubernetes, but that's news to me. And that's pretty amazing. It doesn't surprise me, but it's uh, it's definitely interesting to hear about. I, I have heard about Runway. That's another... Mm -hmm project can you break down like where metaflow starts and runway mm -hmm. uh and what those two like why they're separate and mm -hmm. what they do sure yeah so so a bit of a historical context here so um netflix has had like really big investments in the recommendations infrastructure space and if you look at uh recommendation systems uh you know like 10 years ago 15 years ago uh, most people who were doing machine learning, they were more or less in the JVM uh, Scala stack. So our recommendations infrastructure stack is uh, pretty much uh, in the JVM Scala wheelhouse. And now we are sort of like in the process of uh, sort of like figuring out like, okay, now what does the future entail? And um, what are the pieces that we can continue to use from uh, that part of the universe? And what are the latest and greatest uh, in the Python and R ecosystem? that can again sort of like uh, get us more leverage. And uh, in, in that scheme, Runway is essentially for us a model management system where uh, at the end of the day, you have users who are building these really complicated recommendation models. And now these recommendation models, they are serving uh, inferences uh, to all the members who log into Netflix. And we need a mechanism to track which models are actually being used, how they are performing. Uh, we also bundle it with like some of the monitoring solutions that we have internally. And that's, that's the kind of tooling that Runway provides, which is more focused on uh, just the model management lifecycle for member facing uh, or like Netflix subscriber facing inferencing. Mm -hmm. uh, while the use cases that Metaflow is currently solving at the moment are more around uh, training models in Python and R as well as uh, function as a service platform uh, for hosting uh, some of these models for internal use cases. Okay, I see. So we've got a question in the chat from Ron. Mm -hmm. Thanks for asking this, Ron. He's wondering what tools or storage does Netflix use for data ops, mm -hmm. i.e. the front end management of data sets, mm -hmm. and how does that integrate with Metaflow. So, Ron, I think you may have misheard us. It's Metaflow, not MLflow, that we're talking about. Sure. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Now, uh, you know, my team we stand on the shoulder of the giants. So, Netflix has uh, a very advanced 
uh, data platform and there are like numerous presentations uh, on that uh, on the internet so i would highly recommend uh, checking those out but i'll, I'll sort of like give you a brief uh, tldr on like what we have available so as i said uh, all of our data uh, gets stored in s3 and we were sort of like uh, one of the very first companies to use S3 as our data lake uh, to decouple storage from compute. If you look at, say, you know, like some of the big data systems that were being built um, 10 years ago, uh, like the Hadoop ecosystem that would couple your storage with compute. And at that point in time, uh, we decided that, you know, for us, uh, that decoupling is uh, rather important. And we would essentially uh, prefer to pay the cost of moving data over the network uh, just so that we can have this isolation and then we can have a variety of different query engines uh, to run on top of S3. So, so this data, you can access this data uh, through, you know, Presto, Spark. Uh, so we have all of those query engines available internally to our end users. Um, and also uh, very specifically for uh, data access for machine learning, usually what ends up happening is that um, the data scientists, they are usually interested in just like fetching one single partition or a bunch of partitions from a table uh, that's available in the data warehouse. And what we have seen in practice is that going through a query engine uh, for those sort of requests is usually uh, not really that efficient uh, because you're overloading uh, the query engine. And then, you know, if anybody else is running a very heavy query on the query engine, then uh, it will also penalize uh, the amount of time it takes you to get your data back. So we have invested in tooling uh, within our team so that you can directly go to our data warehouse and we can like bypass short circuit uh, these query engines and get you uh, access to this data as quickly as possible to the tune of like, you know, like uh, two to four GBPS depending on the instance type that you're using. And uh, so that's, so we have made like big, big investments around data access. Mm. And then of course there are other concerns that cut across machine learning, which is like, how are you cataloging your uh, data systems? Uh, how do users even figure out what data sets actually exist? Um, how do you, uh, how are you sort of like managing the governance policies and how are you taking care of TPS and all of that? And um, so, so our data platform team it provides us all of that tooling and we just piggyback on that. Awesome. And I know I, I was watching a video with you, uh, I think it was op ml or something like that some festival or conference mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> hard to have festivals these days but uh the in that talk you mentioned how when we think about netflix and machine learning we think about the recommender systems mm -hmm. but now it's it's kind of bloated and grown into such a big part of netflix uh just business model can you explain the mm -hmm. other areas that you're using uh, machine learning? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as, as you can imagine, right, like uh, Netflix, uh, it's, it's a major uh, company in the entertainment business. And um, in every company's life cycle, you sort of like hit a point where to sort of like gain any further progress, uh, you have to sort of like start investing in data science because uh, everything is running at such a high scale. Right, uh, and like just just to articulate like some of the problems that we run into where we use uh, data science is uh, whenever we have to roll out say any changes uh, to the services that are your experience. Now these uh, changes uh, we have to be very mindful, right, uh, mm -hmm. that we are not uh, in any way hampering your viewing experience. 
So, so we'll roll out uh, a small canary, we'll observe how it's performing, and then uh, if it's performing as per expectation, then we'll roll out roll it out to like bigger audience, right? Mm -hmm. And this needs to be done with care, but then, okay, how do you figure out given that, you know, if Netflix is available on hundreds of different devices and people are using Netflix uh, with like different kind of internet connections and all, any change that gets rolled out, how do people uh, so like build confidence on those changes. Mm -hmm. So so we observe, you know, like uh, some of the quality metrics, uh, the quality of streaming that you're getting. And then we uh, sort of like roll it back and there's like some analysis that's done uh, to sort of like qualify a change set that, okay, you know, like is it green and can we sort of like roll it out to many more people or not? And uh, some of this work is actually uh, open source as well. So our canary analysis tool, it's called Kayenta. And um, uh, also another uh, Netflix open source tool is Spinnaker. That's uh, our CI/CD tool. So it, it works hand in hand with that, and that's like one of the areas where you know we have significant investments in machine learning. Then um, you know um, we are processing like a lot of payments, uh, so we need to be very crafty uh, about like just like detecting fraud that's happening on our uh, platform. So so we need to uh, invest in those areas. Um, Content analysis uh, is again uh, one area that uh, we try to sort of like uh, use data science to look at like, you know, what's working for us, what's not. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as you can imagine, right? Like just, just think of a big company that Netflix is and uh, at a sufficient uh, scale, each of the problems that could be just solved by heuristics, you sort of like start to reach the limits of those heuristics. Mm. And uh, that's when you have to introduce uh, machine learning. And uh, that, that was indeed like sort of like the motivating factor uh, for us building Metaflow because now each of these different problems, they are, uh, they require different solutions. They require different tooling. Uh, the data scientists who are working on each of these problems, they have very different um, skill sets as well, uh, very different areas that they specialize in. And uh, we essentially wanted to sort of like build something that could just like take care of their daily pains, mm. and um, yeah, that, that was the entire exercise. And that leads perfectly into the next question that I was going to ask you about, like, what do you feel the hardest part of building and operating machine learning workflows is? Honestly, everything is hard. And at the same time, everything should be rather easy and straightforward. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, I don't, I don't really have like one single thing that I can talk about that, hey, you know, like this is the thing that is the hardest. Like I can give you a laundry list of maybe you know, like tens and like hundreds of things that I find are like equally, equally important because mm. it's it's like, you know, if, if you have to build a well thought out system uh, that works really well in practice, then you have to focus on all the components that go in. Uh, you know, if you miss out on even one, uh, then that will just like lead to more grief down the line. So, so as I said before, right, like one of the most basic things uh, for any sort of like machine learning project is around data, right? Um, how do you make sure that, you know, your data is of appropriate quality and not just like of appropriate quality when you looked at it for the first time, but as you are getting more and more data, the quality bar is maintained. And that's, that's a big problem that, you know, a lot of uh, very smart people are trying to solve and people are making good progress on that front then uh, how do you get access to that data? Uh, so, you know, uh, like most training algorithms, they take uh, input data as data frames. 
versus the data that's persisted in data stores is usually often in the form of uh, tables. So uh, there's this uh, significant amount of work being done that, okay, how do we sort of like get access to this data as efficiently as possible in the correct format uh, so that uh, you're not spending say minutes or hours just like moving data around. Then um, cost becomes again one big concern that yes, of course, you know, like mm -hmm. a lot of these things, if you don't care about the cost, then you can just like throw more and more resources. But then uh, for for a lot of organizations, it just isn't prudent. Uh, you know, like we, we live in a real world, so uh, everything has a particular cost. And, and the cost is not just in terms of like, you, you know, like what your AWS bill is going to be, but also uh, what is your total ownership cost of your machine learning systems? Uh, how much, you know, uh, data scientists cost and like uh, what would be the operational burden going forward? and uh, How do we sort of like minimize that uh, to the best of our abilities? Then uh, reproducibility is something that's sort of like very near and dear to my heart. And um, the, the academic definition of reproducibility is that, yes, you know, we have a data set and we have the code and that should usually be good for uh, reproducibility, but uh, in practice, that's never really the case. Uh, so yes, of course, you know, you need the data set, you need the code, but then at the same time, the, the world is moving, right? Like say, if you install a specific version of PyTorch today, will pull in some underlying dependencies. If you install the same version of PyTorch tomorrow, it'll pull in a different set of dependencies and your behavior yeah. of your trainer can sort of like uh, change. Um, and then at the same time, like one thing uh, that's incredibly hard to do today is uh, collaboration. So it's, it's really, really tricky for data scientists to meaningfully collaborate with one another. And that's where sort of like repeatability becomes a big concern, right? Like, if let's say you're working on a model, but I can't really take your code and run it reliably on my own laptop or whatever system I have available, uh, then I can't even think about building on top of it. And uh, so, so I think the need of the R of like the entire MLOps community is to just like, you know, think about how can we sort of like move from a world where say, you have like five data scientists on a team, each of those working on an individual problem by themselves, uh, to say five data scientists meaningfully collaborating on a single project uh, because I think very soon we are going to sort of like also hit the bounds of like how much um, context one person can keep in their head yeah. and deliver on a project. Uh, so, so yeah, that's that's another. Component. So many good points there with with that. I mean, you made this point earlier too, and the cost, like optimizing not only spend or optimizing not only the data science workflow, but optimizing what the data scientist is doing is such a great point. And yeah, along with that, I mean, this reproducibility, I know it's part of like the three pillars that you all are using. And we'll get into that in a second, but it it's such a great point that you were talking about this because... I remember about a year ago, I was talking to a friend and he was saying how he had to work on a colleague's, uh, I can't remember, it, it was like he had to figure out the model that a colleague had made. And he said for like the first week and a half, he was just figuring out what was going on. And mm -hmm. it was like he was going around this labyrinth and trying to pick up these breadcrumbs, right? And trying to see, okay, what's happening here? And I spoke about this just last week with um, Neil Lathia, who's the head of ML at 
uh, Monzo Bank. And he was saying how, how difficult this problem is because it's very much in our heads, right? Like machine learning and very, especially when it's exploratory, where mm -hmm. maybe we're trying to research. And so we know what's going on very clearly. But when we try to go into what uh, someone else is doing and we try to pick up the, the, whatever they were working on, then it gets very difficult. So I love that you're trying to attack that problem. And maybe we can just talk about these three pillars and why you chose these three pillars. I think it's pretty clear that the reproducibility one is huge. It's really important. Uh, and then there's scalability. And then forgive me, because I forgot the third one. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I guess uh, this was like a presentation that I gave a long while back where we had like reproducibility, scalability, and usability. And uh, so, so in, for that presentation, we essentially wanted to focus on like three ideas. So we like, yes, you know, like these three ideas are kind of like really relevant for us in practice. And that's, that's why we sort of like mentioned that. But yes, of course, you know, there are like a lot of other uh, sort of like dimensions to machine learning systems as well that are equally important. Now on the reproducibility uh, side of things, I mean, the reality is that the problem is difficult. If it wasn't, then it would have already been solved. <laughs> so, so, um, and I mean, I, I don't claim that you know, like we have solved the problem. Uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, there's no like one single definition of reproducibility as well. Like, uh, you know, uh, if if you are trying to make things reproducible, then uh, theoretically, you know, like you, you need to have like an audit log of everything that has happened, and this audit log by itself. Uh, you should you should be able to sort of like walk back in time and replay that audit log. Uh, so so it's not just like I could capture like what all changes happened, but I should be able to roll back to a particular state and be able to meaningfully execute on that. And the components that I spoke about, right? Like data happens to be one. So you need to have a data platform story that your data platform underlying data assets actually allow you to do that rollback. Many times people don't have that capability. Uh, user code is another one, and you know like you have like version control. You can just like copy code uh, for every execution, and that sort of like gives you some rollback guarantees. Then uh, you have like dependencies, uh, like library dependencies and all, and you can also snapshot those and also, so there are like solutions around that as well. Uh, then the fourth one is that, you know, your actual runtime, your infrastructure is also rapidly evolving. So, so you need to make sure that there is some way to roll back that as well. And then, ML models by themselves, they have like sufficient degree of entropy, sufficient degree of randomness. So you need to have a story around that, which is like very, very tricky. And now all of these, like managing all of these entropies and rollbacks and audits, these all incur some cost. And, you know, many times uh, on the basis of like whatever problem you are in, it might be okay to forego some notions of reproducibility because, you know, frankly, you just don't care about that as much, right? And um, so, so it's, it's really important to sort of like keep that viewpoint in mind and then sort of like design systems that yes, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's all about trade-offs, right? Like there's no like one true system that just like promise you, promises you the holy grail of reproducibility. It's all about like, okay, you know, like what are the things that you care about and what are the things that you're okay sort of like uh, not really worrying about as much. And um, so, so for us, you know, when, when we look internally, like, uh, if, if you're running any sort of machine learning workload in production, even if you know for a moment we don't think about the collaboration and the shareability aspect, one thing that's really important is that how do you recover from failures, 
right? Say, say you have a training workflow and that training workflow failed for whatever reason in production, right? Now, as an end user, I want to be able to replicate that exact same error. I want to be able to run that pipeline and recreate that failure so that then I can figure out how to fix that, right? Otherwise, then I'm shooting arrows in the dark, hoping that something will stick. And that again, you know, like leads to a lot of heartburn and leads to a lot of loss of productivity cycles because you don't yeah. really know how to fix the problem if you can't really even reproduce it in the first set. Totally. So, so for us, this notion of repeatability, this notion of reproducibility uh, was more from the debuggability angle, right? Anything that you're building, they need to be debuggable, right? Like things, things are going to break, things are going to fail, your data distributions are going to change. Uh, some of the assumptions that you had baked in might not hold true, say, you know, three months from now, six months from now. And at that point in time, you need to be able to go back in time, look at like, okay, why were certain things working? Why are certain things not working? What's the delta? And then sort of like work your way around that. And uh, so that, that was really important. Now, um, on the scalability uh, side of things, um, we, we also do understand that, you know, like uh, for us, when we started building Metaflow, the notion of scale was that of like diverse set of problems. But then when you're looking at the diverse set of problems, like one thing to note is that the iteration cycle of a data scientist, like they usually start off on a small data set, right? Like say something that fits on their laptop or something that fits on their cloud workstation. But then very soon they'll be like, okay, you know, like this thing works. Now I want to train my model on the entirety of the data set. But now uh, this uh, data does not fit in the instance that I have. What do I do next, right? Um, and we, we want to make sure that, you know, like there are many different solutions that you can do at that point in time, like, uh, but the simplest one that also has the lowest amount of operational overhead is if somehow we can sort of like give you access to a much bigger instance so that you can just like whatever code you had, you just execute that code on a much bigger instance without making any changes to your code, right? Like that, that would be like far more simpler and straightforward. Mm -hmm. so, so we wanted to make sure that we were providing those primitives so that if let's say, you know, I'm training a model, I run into an out of memory exception, and then I realized that, oh, you know, like I only have 16 gigs of RAM on my laptop, but what I need is like at least 100 gigs of RAM. Then I can just like change like uh, one annotation and then the code automatically runs on an instance which has 100 gigs of RAM. And then all the results are piped back to me while I don't have to think about that, oh, you know, this instance was actually in the cloud. And if you have an instance in the cloud, you need to first create a Docker container. You need to put your code in, you need to get the data somewhere. Then you need to get the results back. As a data scientist, I don't really want to know all of that. I just want the capability to just, here is my code. The system should know everything else and the compute should just, should just execute and give me back the results. Uh -huh. And then, you know, like if you sort of like stretch this idea further, then okay, you know, like can I run multiple copies of uh, my code with different parameters on multiple different instances? And that also, again, you know, like gets you a little bit farther ahead. And of course, there comes a point where, you know, like your model size becomes big, your data size becomes so big that you have to go through like some distributed model training approach. But there's, there's sort of like this entire world of like, you know, just like scaling your instance vertically or then just like scaling instances horizontally and just like mm -hmm. doing some rudimentary sharding of data that gets you uh, much further along. And that's, that's, you know, another recommendation that we have for our users internally that yes, you know, it's like think about like some of these uh, basic primitives before thinking about anything super complex. Uh, but then yes, you know, if say 
can't really do without distributed model training, then yes, of course, we'll go in and we'll support that as well. So I'm wondering, and, sorry to cut you off, just yeah. along that point, and I see there's a question from Kenny. I'll get to that in just a second, Kenny. But I'm wondering, like, you're giving people basically so much power, right? Mm -hmm. That they could do a lot of harm with it too, because they may just be like, well, I have unlimited resources. Let me just train this insane thing, or let me just have these instances that are insanely large. How do you keep them from going overboard? Sure. Yeah, uh, that's that's an excellent question, and you know, something that we have given internally a lot of thought about. So when you, when you look at like these uh, container orchestration systems, right, and that's that's where like uh, beauty of like some of these systems, like you know, Titus that we have built internally and AWS Batch, with which we have uh, an integration in the open source, come in handy. Where they have this uh, notion of queuing and priorities. So so you can have like uh, certain queues which only have access to a certain fixed amount of compute. And uh, that means that no matter how many jobs you launch, uh, it can at any point in time only support a set number of uh, vCPUs or GPUs. And all the other jobs, they'll just like wait in the queue. And you know, if, if you are being creative with these queues and the priorities amongst your queues, then you can very easily uh, provide uh, flexibility to your uh, data scientists where you know, if they just want to sort of like do some sort of um, uh, exploration, then they have access to a limited number of instances in their compute environment. And once everything is approved and okay for production, then they should be able to move their compute into a queue, uh, which has access to far greater resources. Okay, that makes sense. So Kenny's asking, can you explain this pillar of usability? He's yes. curious as to what the usability pain points you had to resolve were. Yes. Yes. So, so for us, Metaflow was, you know, inherently a very big exercise in usability. So, so uh, like my fundamental belief is that uh, tools should work for people, and people should not work for tools. And uh, so, so for us, it was rather important that you know we don't place an expectation on our data scientists to be systems engineers. And um, also, uh, you know, like Metaflow, it's it's a Python library. It's not a DSL. Uh, and that was a really conscious choice because as soon as you introduce a DSL, then people have to sort of like flip through manuals and understand like, okay, you know, like how to sort of like work through that DSL. And, uh, but if you're just like using a programming language that you're already used to, and the reason why we went with Python and R was because these uh, people, they are working in these languages day in and day out. That's what like makes it rather simple and straightforward for them. And then um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, as I said uh, at the beginning of this conversation as well, um, there's this like the machine time and then there's people time, right? And um, we ideally, I wouldn't want my data scientists to like spend a lot of time baking Docker containers, flipping through the manuals for Titus and Kubernetes and AWS Batch, trying to think about like, hey, you know, what does this Kubernetes error code mean? Uh, also, if, if you're running anything on the cloud, right, like instances fail all the time, there are like a lot of errors that happen. So, so you need to have a good amount of like, you know, uh, resiliency baked into the system. And that uh, resiliency uh, should also be exposed to the user in a very easy to consume manner. And um, that's, again, uh, something that aids in usability at the end of the day. Um, yeah, I mean, 
if if you look at say you know like everything that i spoke about like you know walking between like different layers of the stack there are like a whole bunch of things that people need to do and our goal was to abstract that away but even then not really hide that you know all of these activities were happening behind the scenes because when failures happen they should be able to go in and deep up like one example here would be that every single time you execute your code we actually snapshot the code and we store that uh, in perpetuity and that's sort of like the executable runtime which we try to uh, make as reproducible as possible and um, now if, if a user had to do it by themselves then they would sort of like find themselves in some sort of like version ops world or get ops world and that hampers their usability right then what it means is that every single time i execute my code i need to take a few more actions uh, to make sure that i'm logging what the behavior of my code is what my actual git hash was and so on and so forth and we would want to take care of that out of the box for them. There should not be any extra step that they should be taking. So, so for us, it's it's more of an exercise in design that can be sort of like uh, remove as many actions that a user needs to take for any of these operational concerns. And that's that's sort of like the usability angle. Sweet. So I don't know if you can answer this one, but you know, role-based access control has been something that has been coming up a lot yeah. recently. And yeah. I'm wondering how you are doing that, especially when mm -hmm. it comes to data, because data is so sensitive, right? And so yeah. how how does, I don't know if uh, Metaflow does anything specific for that, or if just inside of Netflix, mm -hmm. you're doing it some way, mm -hmm. but can you speak to that at all? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, like, as, as you can imagine, um, even uh, inside Netflix, we do have some data sets uh, that are like far more kosher far, uh, and need to have like a higher degree of security and access control compared to some other data sets. So, so we do have systems internally uh, that you know will authenticate certain workflows and only allow access to certain individuals. And now, as it happens with Metaflow, right? Like so. We don't want to bake in any of these controls within Metaflow, but we want to make sure that Metaflow uh, obeys uh, to any of these uh, constraints that are placed. So for example, uh, for our integration uh, with AWS and open source, uh, we obey all the IAM restrictions that exist, uh, right? So uh, like another uh, example is that right now you can go to uh, metaflow.org slash sandbox and uh, we'll essentially give you a cloud instance, which has like a certain number of vCPUs, has S3 buckets, has like step functions and everything so that you can very easily try out Metaflow um, on the cloud and see, you know, like this thing actually works. And behind the scenes, we have to make sure that, you know, there's like strict isolation that people are not able to read anybody else's data and the data is cleaned out as soon as uh, their uh, sandbox expires. And all of that machinery essentially happens uh, via IAM policies, IAM rules. There's like nothing specific that we have baked in Metaflow. So if let's say, you know, there are many organizations who have a specific posture towards security access, and you want to make sure that, you know, they can just pip install Metaflow and it just works out of the box for them uh, without us needing to do any sort of like customization. And then that gives uh, all of these organizations much greater uh, degree of flexibility as well as control or how they want to manage their data sources, who can launch a compute instance. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm getting a question in the chat here, and I, I believe I know the answer to it, uh, mm -hmm. but is Metaflow based on Kubernetes? It is not, mm -hmm. right? It, or is it? Uh, so um, so it's, 
It's a good question. So uh, Titus internally is uh, has moved on top of Kubernetes, and we have an integration with Titus. So as part as like a compute platform is concerned, so so there is a Kubernetes uh, integration, and uh, Metaflow uh, by itself, you know, it, it follows a plugin based architecture. So for us, it's more about like okay. This is a unit of compute, and now we need to execute that unit of compute somewhere. It could be your laptop, it could be a cloud instance, and uh, there are uh, sort of like uh, PRs open, and it's, it's also an active area of work for us in the open source community as well to have like more Kubernetes integrations. Uh, so, so that's where we are at right now. But uh, the official open source integration that we have right now is with AWS Batch. So let's talk a little bit about the open source because I mean it's mm -hmm. one thing to be doing this for Netflix specifically, mm -hmm. but then you go and you open source it and I'm sure that opens up a whole new can of worms. Mm -hmm. What have you seen since you open sourced it? What are some learnings that came across that you didn't have when you were mm -hmm. working at Netflix? Mm -hmm. So now one thing uh, about Netflix is that you know we have this uh, culture of freedom and responsibility, uh, which means that our customer teams, our data science teams, uh, they have the freedom to utilize whatever tooling works best for them, uh, which includes any open source alternatives or any other commercial solutions. So even when we were building Metaflow at that point in time, we had to make sure that yes, you know, like, uh, like we would only build something if we felt that uh, there were certain tools that were lacking in the ecosystem at that point in time. So like three years ago, when we started building Metaflow, the MLOps world looked very different. Uh, but then at the same time, we wanted to make sure that, yes, you know, of course, uh, we, do, we don't want to build something that already exists. If something already exists, we would much rather adopt that and build different things. Uh, case in point being our use of the AWS cloud, right? Netflix would have gone and built their own data centers. Amazon is always going to excel at that. So we're like, yes, you know, we'll just like leverage that and build tooling on top of that. Uh, so, so in that sense, when we open source Metaflow, we had somewhat of a fair idea of like, what other tooling existed. Uh, and that was sort of like the big rationale around open sourcing Metaflow where we felt that, yes, you know, there, there is a gap in terms of the tooling that exists and we can uh, sort of like make a meaningful contribution to the community. And ever since open source, you know, like we have spoken to a lot of companies, a lot of individuals who are using Metaflow, who are keen to adopt Metaflow as well. And that has also honed our thinking around how the community is evolving, how people are sort of like looking at things and has allowed us to sort of like either validate some of our hypothesis that we held mm -hmm. that yes, you know, like these are some of the areas that hold much more stronger promise for us, as well as, you know, some of the things that we were thinking about that, okay, you know, maybe this might be useful and it turns out that maybe, you know, people are not really too keen on uh, those things. And, and so uh, data access happens to be, you know, like one of those areas where it, it indeed is a real pain point for a lot of people. Uh, like, what does the data ecosystem look like? Uh, how do I get access to data? And like, what are some of the good patterns around just like arranging data in my data warehouse? Yeah, yeah I remember talking to um, a guy almost a year ago, and he was telling me how. So he worked in uh, health tech, and it was a global company and they were only allowed to use the data that came from Canada in Canada. That mm -hmm. data could never leave Canada. So his problem in his head was, how can I make sure that only people in Canada have access to that data? But then mm -hmm. 
they also have access to all the other data, right? So there's a lot of things that are happening right now. And I know that's why this keeps coming back up is like, how can we access, what are the rules? What are the best practices around this access? And that along with security is starting to crop up more and more. And I'm wondering, I guess this may, we've got just a little bit of time left. Um, This may or may not be our last question, but I'm wondering what kind of trends you have been seeing and what are these things that you thought would be interesting or what people are asking for? Where do you feel like the market is going? That kind of big question <laughs> that you can, you can answer in, in two minutes or in two hours. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I mean, this, this is a very loaded question, right? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we are definitely seeing like a lot of activity happening around like all layers of the stack. Uh, I mean, just recently, Tekton raised a big round. A lot of activities are happening on the feature store uh, side of things as well. Uh, And then um, model inferencing is becoming a big uh, hot topic as well. And and on the topic of inferencing, you know, like there's there's like a strong push around uh, what does like microservice-based inferencing look like? But ultimately, at the end of the day, the problem is more around like, okay, you have these models and now these models need to interact with the real world. And what are those integration points like? And those integration points could be a microservice. They could be some sort of like in-process communication, some sidecar, could be some batch scoring. Uh, Similarly with feature stores as well, right? Like uh, feature stores are kind of like, you know, what databases are to software engineering. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you don't have like one single database. You have like, a lot of different databases suited for like different applications. So, so I think now the industry is evolving towards the point where, you know, like they're moving from like one definition, like, hey, we have a feature store to like, hey, you know, this is a feature store suited for this particular use case and these are the constraints and these are the trade-offs that we are making. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, we're sort of like going through the normal uh, cycle of maturity in this ecosystem uh, where early on, People were like, yes, you know, we have these problems, let's build something, people build something. And they were like, yeah, you know, maybe like some of the things that we build uh, might not really have hit the target. But then as, as you learn more, you sort of like hone uh, your understanding better uh, about the problem. And I think that's that's the cycle that we are in. Hmm. Great answer. So I I guess I can sneak one more in before yeah. we finish. And I'm wondering how you've seen companies on when you're when we're talking about the open source market mm-hmm. how have you been seeing companies using this i instantly think because reproducibility is such a big deal with metaflow mm-hmm. i would imagine that it is very well liked by the fintech or banks mm-hmm. because yep. for them it's huge and yep. when you said oh yeah reproducibility for us was more about trying to go through and do these bug bashes Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that. I was more thinking about, okay, when you're having to deal with laws and regulations, you need mm-hmm. reproducibility, right? So mm-hmm. what are some of the companies that you've been seeing really interested in Metaflow? And then also, how have you been seeing them combined it with other tools that are out sure. there? Sure. Yeah, great, great question. Um, so so our, essentially, you know, like... Um, because our focus has been to uh, reduce the accidental complexity in machine learning systems as much as possible, we've seen a significant uptake uh, from organizations who uh, have major investments in machine learning, 
who don't want to sort of like you know spin up yet another team uh, to manage uh, a machine learning platform per se and they, they already have some deployment on aws some cloud presence and they're like yes you know like this tool uh, sort of like helps us uh, get more productive without actually having some person who's sort of like having pager duty or anything of that sort so um, so like small companies uh, startups uh, there, there has been uh, good adoption so far um, and then on on the point of like verticals uh, yes you know i've come across like uh, a lot of banks a lot of healthcare companies uh, use uh, metaflow a uh, bunch of hedge funds uh, automotive majors uh, retail firms so 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 there has been adoption across the band now the problem with an open source project is that you don't necessarily get to know who all are using metaflow unless you know somebody reaches out to us and they're like hey here's some feedback or hey here's something that's broken and you need to fix that so so my uh, understanding of like all the adopters of metaflow is unfortunately kind of like broken uh, so, so yeah that's that's there and then um, i guess the next question was that how do we play with other uh, open source tooling now um, so so we are an open protocol in the sense that you know uh, Within Metaflow, you're just like running arbitrary Python code or arbitrary R code, which means that you can import anything and everything that you want. So uh, I know that a lot of people like MLflow's uh, model tracking uh, or like metric tracking API. And we, we do have people uh, who just uh, use MLflow within uh, Metaflow steps. And then that gives them all the benefits of Metaflow. And then they also uh, have the benefit of going into the MLflow UI and looking mm -hmm. at like all the metrics that they were logging and tracking. And uh, we have people, you know, uh, who use Metaflow for training their models. And then once their models have been trained, then they'll host those as a Cortex model. Uh, mm -hmm. So so that's something we have heard. Uh, yeah, I mean, plenty of these sort of instances have come across so far. Yeah, I imagine there's a ton of use cases that we do not have time to get into today. So, <laughs> Savin, thank you so much for talking to us and giving us this breakdown on Metaflow. I know it is a, for me, I'm, I love the project. I love what you're doing for the exact reason that you said, like, you are basically at Netflix and you have to, because of the culture of Netflix, you are allowing people to say, yeah, we want to use this or no, we don't. Right. So you have to bring the A game when you're creating this and you have to make sure that it is able to plug and play with a lot of different things. And mm -hmm. so I really appreciate you doing this deep dive with us. And I want to say thanks, even though you didn't tell me when Stranger Things is coming out, if they're even recording, nobody's on anymore. So it's all good if you can tell me if they're even recording season four yet or what is going on. <laughs> all right. I won't, I won't press. Honestly, you. Yeah, I have, I have no knowledge on that. <laughs> they don't tell you, huh? So thanks everybody for sticking around. If you're still with us, uh, and join us in the MLOps community Slack. If you are not there already, I'm throwing the link to that in the chat again for the last little piece. And other than that, yeah, Savine's in there. And so if you want to continue this conversation with him, he is there. I'm sure he would not mind if you reach out to him. And the, uh, the last thing I guess would be if they don't want to, if they don't want to come into the community chat, you're also on LinkedIn. 
Mm -hmm. You can find him there. Are you on Twitter? You are on Twitter, I believe. So he's all over the place. You can find him wherever the internet is found. All right, Sabine, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care, everybody.